of the floor on the front row. We're going to uh, light the Advent candle. And uh, so you can sit down or stand, whatever you're comfortable doing. You can sit in the chairs if you would prefer. <laughs> okay. Do, how many of you know what an Advent wreath is? Okay. Do I have an adult that wants to volunteer? The, okay, the Advent wreath represents the four Sundays before Christmas. There are four candles normally in the wreath, but we're only starting with candle number one today. And the four candles represent hope, peace, joy, and love. And so today we're lighting the candle of hope. Before I light that, I have a scripture I want to read and uh, it comes out of the Old Testament from the book of Isaiah. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And what that Scripture was referring to was talking about a child is born, a son is given. Who do you think he was talking about? Jesus, absolutely. So this is one of the Scriptures that the people of the uh, before Jesus came to earth uh, they looked at this scripture and it gave them hope that that the, the Messiah was going to come. And so we celebrate the fact that he has come, but we also have a second hope that goes with that, and that is that he's coming again. And so we as Christians today, we look back and say, thank you God for coming and, and saving us on the cross and all that he did for us. But we also look forward with our hope now vested in the fact that He's going to come again and at that point take us all to heaven. Isn't that an awesome picture, an awesome thought? Okay? And so let's light this candle. Now I practiced this and now it's not working. There we go. I knew, I, I tested it and everything ahead of time, so I was sure. Okay, so. Uh, Anyway, that's what I wanted to share with you before you go off for your Sunday school lessons. And so now you're dismissed for Sunday school. Oh, oh, the catechism. That's right. I always forget about that. <laughs> okay, this is question number eight. And the question is, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? Okay, here's what the Ten Commandments, what it says. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And you shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Very good. They're actually saying it. <laughs> All right, now they're dismissed. I guess I should get that out of the way, huh? I know that Ted already announced the sock tree, but I, I put a subtle reminder up here for me to say something about it. <laughs> you, this is, you know, if this is what you could do, that would be awesome. If you could do more, that would be great. But even if you only can get a couple of pair, and the dollar store even has socks, and so, well, the dollar twenty-five store has socks, and so, uh, but. But this is uh, such a special gift. You have no 
idea. None of us probably really understand how imp- you know. I, we we don't think of socks as being such a special thing, and I, I'm sure young kids, especially if this is what you got for Christmas, you know, uh, you'd say, oh, "Oh, I see Grandma's in here," you know, or, or something to that effect. And uh, and so, uh, but this is they are so grateful, so appreciative, and. What we do is we, we have, as Ted said in the back, a sock tree. We have a few socks hanging on it, but you can just set them on the, the table, uh, under the table, whatever. You know, we just want to just be able to get as many as we can. We leave the tree up until after the first of the year because uh, lots of people get things for Christmas that, that allows them to add to the, the things that we're collecting. Like maybe you get a new jacket for, for Christmas, and that gives you the opportunity to... Uh, give up a jacket, uh, that type of thing. And so we collect jackets, we collect sweaters, we collect knit hats, and we collect uh, the socks. And uh, also, uh, actually, we've collected sleeping bags and, and other things that they can use. And so uh, we use the rescue mission as the ones who will distribute these. And uh, again, they are so appreciative of us. So. Uh, if you can help with that, we would really appreciate it. The first time I got involved, in fact, I have been involved in the, the collection of the socks uh, in one form or another uh, ever since I was uh, first a Christian. Uh, the church that we, Kathy and I went to uh, had a sock tree and they sent it to the uh, Navajo Christian Mission. And so, uh, and, and and also the rescue mission, and so uh, we've uh, been doing this. And it's like I said, we don't think twice about it normally. You know, we run, go into our drawer, we pull out a pair of socks, put them on, and don't think twice about it. But if you don't have any and it's wet and it's cold, what a blessing! So I just encourage you. Um, today, as we've lit the candle for hope. We are talking about Advent. The word Advent means coming. And uh, so as we begin our uh, message this morning, let's pray together. Father, we come this morning in our worship time now to open Your Word and we ask that through Your Holy Spirit You would open our hearts and our minds to receive from You this morning the things that we need that we might be able to uh, draw closer to You and stronger in our walk and be also prepared to uh, share with others the hope that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Advent means coming. Something is coming. Okay? And we as Christians are aware of two Advents. The Incarnation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And that's in John chapter 1, verse 1. And then it goes on in verse 14. And God, you know, and, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the first advent. Jesus Christ coming as a man. The incarnation. The second coming is Christ coming to judge all things and, and, and establish uh, the uh, new heavens, the new earth, the whole thing that goes with that. And, and so we're looking to the second coming. Uh, t- typically we think in terms of the word rapture. Uh, and uh, so uh, Paul has a statement that he makes, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. And uh, I second that. So uh, today's theme, hope. And by the way, the word hope, how many of us uh, think in terms of hope as something you hope might happen? And that's typical because of where, the way our language uses this word today. Okay, and probably for all of our lives and for generations going back before us. I hope, well, in some cases, some people think, I hope it's going to rain. Others might say, I hope it's not going to rain. Uh, but uh, we have that picture of, of the idea of, of something tentative. When it's used here, it is an absolute, it will happen. The Advent and, and the, the awesome thing is is that we have confidence for this as New Testament Christians, if you will, 
based on all the prophetic Scriptures that have already been fulfilled, especially by Christ. And so, I wanted to take a, a focus on that this morning. And in the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the resurrection has occurred and there's two men walking on the road to Emmaus. And so this is the 24th chapter of Luke, verse 13. That very day, two of them, the disciples of, that were two followers of Jesus, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. He said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other to, uh, as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Clippus answered and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these, last, in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet and mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed they were at the, uh, amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find His body, they came back saying that, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Now, you read a verse, a passage like that, and I don't know, at least for me, I sit there and think, what Scriptures did he share? It says beginning with Moses. So that puts us into Genesis to Deuteronomy. And I, so I'm putting together ones that I would look at and, and think might, that could have been the ones that he was sharing with them. Uh, the very first Messiah prophecy, possibly, out of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and what's the setting of that chapter is, this is where Adam and Eve sinned. They hid from God. And, and it's an amazing thing. God says, where are you? Now, we interpret that as to, I can't see you, where are you? I believe he was really asking a far more detailed question, deeper question than that, where are you? In other words, in your heart, where are you? And uh, they had hid from him because they were unclothed and they knew it. And they were ashamed. They'd never been ashamed before. They'd never had thoughts of, of, of evil or, or, or things that would be cross of, uh, of what God would want from them. And, and now they had those thoughts. As soon as they had sinned, they had the thoughts that crouched in and, 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 and took over. And they were afraid. They didn't know what was going to happen. And so a specific prophecy, there were three sets of prophecies and, and, and things put out in the sense of, of judgment or coming judgment and the consequences of, of, of this sin. One was to the serpent, one was to Eve, and one was to Adam. The one to the serpent is the one that I think would be the possibility of something that uh, Jesus might have shared as He was sharing the prophecies uh, that would fall into order and bring understanding to them.
The Lord, it's verse 14 of chapter 3 of Genesis. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your, and some of the Bibles say offspring. Literally the word is seed, singular, offspring, singular and her offspring, seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Bruising of the heel is the idea, and I think I shared this a while back, uh, is very similar to like when you step off a curb and you you hit your heel wrong and you fall down because you've uh, stressed your Achilles tendon or something to that effect. And, uh, And so that idea of bruising your heel, he's going to appear to fall but He's going to bruise your head, which in context means He's going to rule over you. He's, he's going to... In the old, in, in old days of, 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 of the Old Testament, if a king conquered an enemy, he would hold his foot on top of his head. The enemy would come and put his head down and the, the king would hold his foot over his head as symbolic of you are defeated. And that's the picture given to us here. So I thought, you know, maybe this is, you know, starting with, it says with Moses, and Moses wrote Genesis, so uh, maybe this would be the first Scripture that Jesus would have looked at. Um, There are others that have importance uh, that we frequently see at Christmas time. Uh, In the book of Isaiah, uh, I read... Verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, talking of a coming son uh, that will come amongst us. Uh, two chapters earlier, in verse 14 of chapter 7 of Isaiah, it speaks of a virgin birth. Uh, a virgin shall uh, conceive. Uh, in chapter 53, Isaiah speaks in detail about a suffering servant and uh, the things that he will go through. Psalm 22 speaks very directly to the crucifixion. And it's interesting. Before, uh, this, is, this is a thousand years before you know, Christ, you know, but it's also a, uh, a time before even crucifixion was considered a form of punishment. The Romans brought this into effect uh, several centuries later. Uh, as a form of punishment as they started conquering and, and using it as, as a display for people to see how they would treat their enemies. If, if you cross us, the Roman Empire, this is what you've got to look forward to. And it became a very graphic symbol. And so Psalm 22 speaks very specifically. David writing about uh, Jesus on the cross. And if you go to read Psalm 22, read it with the understanding that it's Jesus looking off the cross at the people. It's the words of Jesus looking off the cross at the people. And uh, it's, it's quite a graphic picture. In chapter 16 of, the, of, of, of Psalms, we have the resurrection as well, uh, that His body would not let, be left to Sheol and, 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 and that God would spare it. So all that to, to look at, all these different scriptures that Jesus could have been referring to. Who knows which ones he used if, 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 if maybe he spent the afternoon using all of them. Um, there's a scripture also this time of the year that we frequently see on Christmas cards and stuff like that that have a Christian accent to them. And that would be uh, the picture of Bethlehem and, and the star in the sky and everything. And we have a prophecy in Micah in chapter 5, verse 2 that tells us that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Now, I guess I'd have to say I'm taking a, 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 a side shot here, the detour, but it is amazing to me when I first started understanding these things that God is in control of everything and everyone. That's very difficult for me at times especially when I see tragedy, when I see uh, uh, the things, the atrocities that happen and this type of thing. And I, 
but but God in His sovereignty is going to make something out of that that is going to be amazing. And and so you look at it that way and know that God is going to to do something with even the worst possible situation. And so we have Joseph and Mary. Okay, where are they from? Hmm? Nazareth, okay. Nazareth is a good 80 miles plus. I don't remember how, how far it is, but it's north of, of, of Bethlehem. It's a long journey, and it's winter. And, by the way, there's no mention of Mary riding a donkey. We just hope, because of the nature of, of, of people, that there's somebody was helping her along the way, various places along the way, that they would let her ride in their wagon or their donkey on their donkey as, as they go down to Bethlehem. He had, Joseph had no reason to go to Bethlehem. He was a carpenter with a carpenter's business established in Nazareth. But Caesar Augustus wanted to know ahead of time what his annual income from his captured territories was going to be. And so he decided that every person has to register with a tax collector. And therefore he would know how many people and basically what to anticipate in the way of head tax as well as as possible uh, property taxes and different types of things that they were looking at collecting. And so Joseph and Mary needed to register. But see, the Hebrew people have an additional tradition and custom that requires them to, when they register, they have to register in their uh, hometown of their descendancy, of their ancestry. Joseph, his ancestry goes back to Bethlehem. So because Caesar Augustus wants to know how much money is going to come in, Joseph has to go and Mary have to go while she is pregnant Bethlehem. And I think that, again, there's this awesome picture of how God simply coordinates and puts together everything that is necessary to make it happen. Caesar got used by God, and I love it. It's, you know, it's just uh, it's a, a neat picture for me. And so Bethlehem would be the place that he was born. You go on further through the Scriptures and uh, the Old Testament, and you look at the, the ancestry of Jesus and uh, certainly the seed of Eve, you know, starting with Adam and Eve, you know, but going on to Shem, God said that the, the Shem would be in this lineage of, of Christ. Then finally Abraham is promised that his a son in his lineage would, would, would be the messianic person. Then, out of Abraham's son, Isaac was promised. From Isaac, Jacob was promised. Now, Jacob has 12 sons, and Judah is the one that's promised, the tribe of Judah. Out of the tribe of Judah, Jesse is promised, who is the father of David. Now, you start to put this together, and you realize the throne of David, David's promised that his future seed will restore his kingdom and 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 put everything back together it's 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 like a, a sieve going like this and just narrowing the process down eliminating x number of parts of the world and x number of of, of lineages and whatever to bring down to this point and how many of you are familiar with a, a, a gentleman who's a, an apologetic in, in, in our world today? His name is Josh McDowell. Okay. Josh McDowell wrote a book, Evidence the Demands of Earth. I think he wrote it in 1972. And uh, in 1976, right after I had become a Christian, he spoke at a... Uh, he, had, he had initially done a debate with somebody on, on the Cal Poly campus uh, where I went to school. And then he spoke there. And so uh, I got to hear him speak. 
and uh, I, I picked up his evidence book and, and because I was really wrestling. My biggest wrestling match was with how we could deal with the resurrection, somebody coming back to life. That was just something hard for me to, to, to work with. But when he started talking about Jesus is who he says he is because he's either a lunatic or a liar or he's who he says he is. That was his phrase back then. And, and basically the idea was, was he is who he says he is. And if you accept that, then you have to accept the, the reality that this is the Word of God. We, we say that's what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, this is the inspired Word of God. And so, uh, God breathed Word. And so, the, the, he, what Josh McDowell did was start looking at all the prophecies. By the way, when Josh McDowell started out before he published that book, he started out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what caught me because that was when I was struggling with. And so I followed through with his ministry, volume two of, of, of Evidence that Demands a Verdict, and uh, uh, more than Carpenter and a few other things that he uh, wrote as well. And he narrowed down to eight specific prophecies that he thought were really important. The place of Jesus' birth would be Bethlehem, especially when you figure how you had to get him from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There had to be somehow to do that because that would have not been a normal thing to do, especially in winter. Okay, The time of his birth, it had to happen before the temple was destroyed. Now, we had no, they had no idea that the temple was going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. It wasn't like they had a time frame to work with there, but that was a timing that had to happen. The manner of birth, a virgin birth, that he would betrayed, be betrayed and for 30 pieces of silver. And by the way, these are all Old Testament prophecies as well. An Old Testament prophecy that, that would focus on his manner of death, certainly Psalm 22 would uh, deal with that with us, and the people's reaction, which in Psalm 22, again, written before there was ever a hint of, of, of the idea of crucifixion. His side would be pierced. And his burial would be in a rich man's tomb. So those eight prophecies, Joshua Dow took and, and, and built a, a, a teaching around that, and then another 60 prophecies uh, surrounding that that were all tied to these. And uh, a mathematician decided to, to, to figure out what are the odds of Jesus fulfilling these eight prophecies. His name was Peter Stoner. You can look him up in the, on the, the Internet if you want. And what his goal was to find out the odds of one man fulfilling just these eight prophecies. And he worked it out and then he had it validated by his peers as well. He came up with one now, I'm not a great math person, so when I say this, I don't, don't assume that I understand it all myself. One to the tenth to the seventeenth power. In other words, the odds were one in ten to the seventeenth power that just these eight prophecies could be fulfilled. And historically, we know they are. Okay? And so, ten to the seventeenth power, that's ten with seventeen zeros after it. There isn't a name for that number that I'm aware of. Okay, but it's it's billions of billions of billions, quintillions, if you want to get into that, and 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 so the idea was is that that was the 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 odds of just these eight prophecies. If we got into the sixty other pro, the uh, the other sixty prophecies that he was looking at, it became one to ten to the hundred and fifty third power. I I I challenge you to do this because it's interesting what it looks like. You, you, it's better if you have a, a, a piece of, of, of adding machine tape or something to do it and, and start writing the number out and, and start at the edge and, uh, the, that goes into the, uh, into the roll and just start writing and, and see how long a piece of tape you end up with because it's going to be amazingly long. And so, you know, somebody decided to do this 1 to 10 to the 17th power uh, and it was—I I don't believe it was Peter Stoner that actually came up with the graphic for this, 
but, but somebody else investigating, looking at one of his peers, said this would be the same as, and some of you are nodding your head because you know the, the, the book and what it says, covering the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Okay? The state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Now, the odds are one in that many silver dollars, okay? Take one silver dollar, paint it red, toss it into the mix with your eyes closed, whatever, it doesn't matter, because you're going to have bulldozers come in and mix it all up and shovel it around and shove here and push there and all this kind of stuff so that it's totally mixed. Take a person on the borderline of Texas, blindfold him, have him go in and pick the red one out on first pick. Now, I really appreciate this graphic because I work that way in my brain. And so I really appreciated that this really helped me. I thought, okay, what, what, what somebody is telling me is the odds of Jesus doing this accidentally or even on purpose are absolutely out of the, out of the range of, of plausible. We would call that in any mathematical or scientific situation, impossible. It won't happen. And it did. That's just eight. Of over 300, by the way, prophecies. Not just 60. And it did, we only got up to 60 what we, they could work with. Can you imagine trying to, to, to deal with 300? We can rest with confidence in who Christ is and what He has done. And by the way, going back to Genesis 3.15, I'm just looking at this picture again. Satan will bruise Christ's heel, but Jesus Christ will bruise Satan's head. He'll rule over him. He'll cause Christ to stumble the cross. Jesus Christ will end up ruling over him. I want to read to you out of the book of Colossians, the second chapter. Starting with the 13th verse. Paul's writing to them. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What he's talking about is the idea of that really what man needs is has, the Jewish custom was to circumcise the flesh of a male in order to cause him to be identified with the Hebrew people. But the real circumcision was to be symbolic. It was to be symbolic of what God was doing in your heart. And so he says, "You were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh." In other words, your, your heart wasn't circumcised. You were dead. And he's speaking to Jews, Gentiles, anybody who was, would listen. God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses. And by the way, the hymn here is Christ. God has made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling, that's an awesome word by itself right here, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. What were its legal demands? The death sentence. Separation from God eternally. That's what the death sentence meant. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And here we go. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Satan was defeated. He was put to open shame. He couldn't hold Christ in the grave is basically what we could say. He couldn't conquer Christ. That's where we could say that Christ rules over him. Satan's head is bruised. What should be our response to this? 
Well, my, my typical thing to go to is, is one that you probably get tired of hearing is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God to be transformed, not conformed to the world, but to be transformed into Him. And, 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 and so that idea of, of, of being transformed, being changed. Listen to Colossians chapter 3. I've got quite a few verses to read here because it says, put on the new self as the heading for this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of, of God. This is the idea of being transformed, having your mind renewed. Okay, Set your minds on things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. That's the second advent we are looking forward to. And all confident hope rests in it. He goes on to say, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. If these, uh, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian or slave, free or free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, Christ is inclusive. doesn't matter what your background is. If you're a slave, you can still be equal with anyone else in Christ. And it doesn't matter what your background is, where you come from, once you've accepted Christ, we are all on the same plane. We're all on the same level. And so he says, as a result of this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's just, you know, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds uh, everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. And let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What It says, in everything we do. Turn on the TV. You do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Get into your car and drive behind the, 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 getting behind the steering wheel. You're doing it in the name of Christ. Uh, shopping in, the, in a long line in the, in the store with an angry clerk. You're shopping there in the name of Christ. Uh, so put on character of Christ and how He would be. I'll tell you, at Christmas season, especially towards the end, if you do shopping, you do find clerks that are just a little frustrated. You'll be amazed at how an encouraging word will absolutely change them. It's, it's, just, it's, almost, a, it's almost a joy to do it. So, you know, we're to put things off, put things on, put on the, the things of God. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, I'm not going to go there this morning, but uh, starting around the 10th verse is the armor of God. Uh, and, and, and then in our hope again, Jesus tells us, I have gone to prepare a place with you. I will bring you there. I will take you there. In Thessalonians, the coming of, of Jesus Christ in the clouds, and that we will be with Him. We'll join Him. The rapture. That's what we have a hope in. Galatians chapter 4.4. 4, I have to read that one. Even, even though it's, it's just a, a brief word, it's it really important to, to put it into context with what we've been talking about. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, when just the right time had come, when everything that needed to be accomplished up to that point had happened at the very right time, 
fullness of time, Jesus came. And He has promised He will come again and He will not be late. He will not be early. He will be at just the right time. He tells us that we don't even know the time and we're not supposed to know the time. We're supposed to live like it could be today. And for all of us in this room, it's going to be within this lifetime for us, even if there's future generations. So we're in the end times for us. to look again at Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 or 13 through 15 because I want to read them as ushering us into sharing communion together. You who were dead past tense you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished. It was paid in full. That was terms for a debt that would be a receipt. Paid in full, it is finished. The rulers and the authorities that would try to distract your life have been defeated. We belong to Jesus Christ. What an awesome place to be. You were dead. Made alive. You were forgiven all your trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand of death set aside, canceled, and nailed to the cross. As we share communion today, we share uh, the, the, the bread as the flesh of Christ. And, and a lot of times people think of, of the suffering of Christ as as kind of just focused on the cross. Jesus emptied Himself and became flesh. If you will, His suffering began at that point. Suffering meaning that He was giving up. He set apart. He emptied Himself, uh, Philippians says, so that He could come and be a servant to us, ultimately to the cross, that our sins would be nailed to the cross. We would be forgiven. And so every time we share in communion, we share the the, the the, the bread representing the body of Christ and all that He did in the flesh for us with the biggest focus on the, the nailing of our sins as we share the cup. He poured out the blood to purchase this covenant of grace so that all who would confess and believe could be saved. So we have communion here this morning. This side has the packets. And this other side has the cups. The cups are two together. The top cup has the juice. The second cup underneath it has the bread. And I would ask that you would come up and pick it up while we're singing the communion song. And uh, hold it until we've all been served and we'll share together.
of Luke records the institution of the Lord's Supper in chapter 22. Luke writes, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table, and the apostles were with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He said, Take this and divided among yourselves. Let's share the cup, the bread. He went on, I said, I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he'd given it. And thanks. And this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he said, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my body. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to him, uh, to that man by whom he is betrayed. They questioned one another. They shared in the cup. Let's share now. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to share in these emblems that represent the reality that You emptied Yourself, became flesh, and dwelt among us with the purpose of nailing our sins to the cross. That they would be covered, paid in full. That You would defeat the rulers and authorities we worship You. We thank You. We again confess that You are the Christ, the Son of God, raised from the dead. It will return, taking us home to be with You for eternity. 
We worship you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close, please? And again, while you're doing your Christmas shopping, think of those socks. You know, just check out the sock section when you're at Kohl's or whatever else you're at. And, and uh, you know, for six to ten bucks, you can bless six, eight people. Jesus Christ. Lord bless.